Hello, and welcome to episode 82 of the Fuel Hotel Marketing Podcast. I am your host, Stuart Butler, and I am joined today by the data goddess herself, Melissa Kavanaugh. I love my new title. <laughs> Hello, everyone. That's big. Yeah, I, I called Melissa that in an email this week. I, uh, her and her team, I call them data goddesses. And um, I mean every little word of that. I, and we appreciate that. That should go in yeah. your business cards. It they, should. That should be your new title. Yes. It's way sexier than director of <laughs> analytics, right? So much more so. Gotcha. And I also have with me the emperor of search engines, oh, Phil like Fariskas. Hey, everybody. I love that. Yeah. Oh, we're so good. You haven't made it to cards. deity level yet, That's but okay. you're getting there. Take it. I just want a new business card now. <laughs> and we use so many of them. We, we also have the court jester of success management. <laughs> Hello. Pete <laughs> <laughs> DeMeo is with us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Yeah. You you are probably the, the god of beekeeping, but the court jester of success management. No. I, want, I want to be something related to hotel marketing. Maybe. I can only okay. see Pete with the little hat and the bells and things on yeah. his head mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Thanks you, for that image. The comedy relief of the show. <laughs> I can do that. Does <laughs> that count? <laughs> nice. So guys, last week was a really, really good episode. I, I liked it a lot. I listened back to it. I heard a lot of good feedback and um, it was good. We, we did the 10, the top 10 best ways to spend your money to drive direct bookings, right, Pete? According to we Pete. Did. According to Pete. That's why I named it, because it was more clickbaity. Well, because that's what we had talked about doing. Mm, I, so I think three out of four did yeah. it. But <laughs> the, the, what I would like to say is it was a great episode. If you didn't listen to it, go back and listen to episode 81, because it, it was phenomenal. And, um, it was a lot of fun. We do. had a lot of fun doing it. So in honor of that, we decided we'd do a really boring episode today. <laughs> But nonetheless, it is important. So we're going to be talking about GDPR. Um, so we'll get into what that is and what it means for hotels. There's a lot of information about it right now. Uh, we're getting close to the date when it's going to take effect. And people, I think, are beginning to panic a little bit, and as they probably should. You are building anticipation for boring information. Yeah, I am. <laughs> we'll try to do it fueling and styly and uh, make it interesting. It's going to be really hard because there's a lot of dry substance to this. But if, if you're a little unsure about what you know GDPR is and what it means for your business, stay tuned because we're going to get into all that and a lot more later in the show. But before we do, ladies and gentlemen, what's going on in the newsies? All right, I got a quick newsie for you here. So uh, Google is allowing us to remarket to YouTube viewers now. So, jeez, Pete. What in the world was He's that? He's all excited. <laughs> He's like, what? Google's <laughs> what? allowing what? Pete, so, stop destroying our studio. Essentially, if someone searches for something like best hotels for family vacations, and then they go back and visit YouTube and watch videos, we can show ads to those people who have searched for best family vacation hotels or something along those lines. So Google's calling this a custom intent audience. And all you would really need to do is associate some keywords with your video ad campaign with an AdWords, and then you can reach those users who have searched for the terms you're you're going after. This is great. I, I mean, I love any time we can get more focused, more targeted with our ads. And, and we've, ex- we've experimented a lot with YouTube ads, and it's been pretty successful. I mean, the you, you know you can really um, get a lot of data in terms of how people are engaging with the videos, in terms of how much they're watching, and then you can retarget them based on their, their inter- interaction, things like that. But 
This is cool because one of the limitations of YouTube has been how refined we can get in the targeting and how much budget we can spend on the people we are refined to. So this opens up a whole world of opportunity for us as marketers because we can now say, I know there's, a, there's an intent. This person's looking to buy my product versus just targeting on demographics or whatever or, or right. previous video watches or whatever, right? So now I can say someone searched for hotels in Austin. I know they're shopping. They're actively shopping for hotels. And I can bombard the crap out of them with my hotel in Austin. And that's even on YouTube. On YouTube, which is where Super obviously awesome. we know that a lot of people are consuming media now. You know, th this is really weird. So I, I kind of had this epiphany moment last night. I've known for for a long time that I don't watch a lot of TV anymore. And, you know, my media consumption has fundamentally changed. And a lot of it's on my mobile device now, which, which I think a lot of people would agree with. And, you know, in the evenings, on, on the nights when my wife goes to bed early, I'm not tired, I don't want to go to bed, I used to watch TV, right? And Or maybe play video games or whatever. But what I realized last night was I was sitting there on the couch for literally two hours going down the YouTube rabbit hole on my phone. Wow. I have a 70-inch TV up on the wall, <laughs> and I'm sitting there clicking on the next relevant video on YouTube of nonsense, right? Like just garbage crap. It's so easy to get sucked in, though. But I, but I was watching and, and, you know, probably got served 20 ads during a two, two or three-hour period, probably more so than I would have gotten when I was watching regular TV. Why don't you have the YouTube app on your TV? I do. I have a and smart TV, and yet phone. I was sitting there on my phone because I got caught in the in the algorithm, right? They're so smart about <laughs> you just watch this video. It started because the new Deadpool trailer dropped. Yep. So I watched the new Deadpool trailer, and then it targeted me with something else. And it was like an analysis of the Avengers trailer or something. And then I don't, I don't even know what I ended up watching. I mean, it was <laughs> like, I think it was like cringe videos by the end of it or something, you know, or, or like news bloopers or something, just junk, absolute garbage. But it was all on YouTube. And I was getting hit with ads the whole time. You know, 15, 30 second ads. And now those ads are going to be a little more targeted based yeah, on your right, previous because searches. I, if within... I get served that Chantix ad one more time, I've <laughs> never been a smoker in my entire life. And that ad is, is 60 seconds long and you cannot skip it. It's like, who does a 60 second non-skippable ad? Someone well, who wants to make Chantex you angry. Chantix does. And, and they're they have all you gotta, the money They want to make that. you so angry that you smoke and then and you got a problem and now so. you need Chantix. But yeah, this is great. I mean, this reminds me of uh, remarketing, re, re targeting, remarketing lists for search ads. I always oh, yeah. struggle mm -hmm. with that um, acronym. But, you know, where you can target ads to people that have searched for certain keywords before and, and you, you know it, right? So this is great, I, I think. You know, everyone should be testing this. And if you haven't started doing um, video ads yet, you should. YouTube's a great way to get in front of people. Whatever, you know, I'm going to use my word, Pete. Get your bingo card out. It, there's still arbitrage going on in video ads. People, although it's getting bigger, the cost per impression is still very, very low. Oh, yeah. Cost per view on YouTube ads is super low. Yeah. So go try it. It's good. First, get a good video. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's that. a good point though because for this to work you do need to invest a little bit more mm -hmm. into into good content you yeah. know it's not enough to just have a little bit of text and, and copy you got to put something together that's going to be impactful for a customer yeah and 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 by good we don't mean you need to go spend ten thousand dollars on this highly polished you know professional ad it just needs to be valuable to the get right. to the potential guest right or informative or, or give give them some reason that they 
actually care about watching the video. Yeah, if you have a beautiful property, get a little drone video, voiceover, mm -hmm. it might just be good mm -hmm. enough. And, and keep in mind that the reason people are, if we're targeting hotel guests or people who are going to be your hotel guests on YouTube, they're there for to understand the experience that they're about to have. So they're looking for beautiful shots. They're looking for, you know, the video out of the, you know, the balcony and things like that. So that's really what you need to be focusing on because if you can divert them there, you're giving them exactly what they want. It may not be on the video that they plan on watching, but like Stuart said, if you can get them down that rabbit hole, then then you win. Yeah, and I think you know you got to understand the context of when they're seeing the ad too. This is this is not AdWords, right? When when you're serving an ad on AdWords, there's an intent. This the searcher is putting in a keyword. We know that in this case that the the searcher did search for something relevant to your business. But at the time you're hitting them with an ad, you're interrupting their entertainment. They're on YouTube for either information or entertainment. So you've got to either be entertaining or you've got to elicit some kind of an emotional connection. So, so those are really the two angles that you need to go after with your ad. Because otherwise you're just an inconvenience. You're in the way of them seeing the new Deadpool 2 trailer. So you, you've got to make sure you think through the strategy of the content and not just throw up a generic ad. Amen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So that was the one small newsy. There's also a lot of kerfuffle in the news uh, this week about Facebook. And we're going to talk about this a little bit because it's relevant to the, to the topic, right? We're going to be talking about GDPR and, and data protection in general. But, you know, in, in light of all the nonsense that's gone on with Facebook in the last week or so, I think it's really, really, really important that people are being mindful about the data they're collecting and what they're doing with the data and how they're using the data and how long they keep the data and all the things related to GDPR. So anyone want to kind of give a summary of what's going on with Facebook this week and why they're in trouble and why their stock has tanked? Facebook has not been a very good friend to their customers. Well, I'm sorry, their customers are the people buying the ads. They have not been a very good fan to their product, which is the people using Facebook. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction. I mean, I think we all think that we are Facebook's customers. But at the end of the day, if you're not paying for a product, you are the product. Yep, exactly. And in this case, our data, which we've freely given to Facebook, knowingly, lots and lots and lots knowingly of it. has become something valuable to Facebook and more importantly, valuable to other folks. Well, to be fair, people are abusing the data that Facebook let them use, too. I mean, we can get well, into that later. Well, and I think later, that's, it, it kind of goes down a little bit of a political rabbit hole, which we're not necessarily going to, to do on the podcast. But, but what was happening was Cambridge uh, Analytica was improperly using data that they pulled from Facebook in a 2016 election. And what that really causes, one, a lot more targeted ads toward people who really did not give their data to this third-party company. And Facebook was not being a very good steward of the uh, user's data and you know, really launched this whole, whole problem for them. Yeah, so we need to be careful, right? Because Facebook didn't necessarily do anything nefarious. They didn't do anything illegal per se. They just have very loose regulations. So back in like 2013, 2014, when a lot of this data was acquired by uh, Cambridge Analytica, it, it was part of the very lax policies of, of Facebook, right? They weren't really monitoring what people were doing with, with the data. So a lot of what they were doing was things like set, setting up some kind of Facebook app 
that was a poll and, and everyone's seen these polls like which country would you be or what is your Irish name for St. Patrick's Day right so we've all done these junk uh, polls and just to whatever so when you go to fill out one of those polls usually you're giving whoever's doing the poll permission to access your Facebook data so what they what they were doing which is really really smart is they were taking all the information Facebook allowed them to have and then overlaying it with the the answers to the questions that they were posing and over time because you answered enough questions they were building very deep psychological profiles of every individual and Facebook at the time they no longer do this they were also allowing you to have access to the friends data of the people who were agreeing to to fill out which is or, a or lot to, yeah. of so data. Like, on average it was at the time like 200 plus people per person in terms of the friend list so so they and like 30 different data points exactly so you they were collecting a lot more data on a lot more people back then since then facebook's gotten stricter which is great um but the reality is these data companies had a lot of information about your likes your dislikes your psychology how you think and and they got really nefarious in terms of understanding what was going to motivate you what was going to manipulate you and and what you were fearful of so they got really targeted in terms of the ads that you saw and the content that you saw to manipulate you to thinking the way they wanted you to just think. think about some of those stupid quizzes i'm sure we've all taken them how many of the questions seem completely irrelevant to the stupid poll you were taking that's exactly what they're doing they're they're, they're grabbing data points and, and giving you some arbitrary answer yeah you're you know patty go lucky for your saint patrick's day name or whatever they don't care what the answer is they don't care what the outcome is but they got your data points it always goes back to knowing that other people are very lazy and that's exactly what they did when someone says yes that's fine share my facebook profile they're thinking oh my name my profile picture maybe they don't realize that unless you've really ratcheted down your privacy settings within facebook that is all of your information. Mm -hmm. That's your your address, your email address, you know, your likes, your dislikes, what you thumbs up and thumbs down, and wherever this, it might have been. It's not just polls. How many apps do you sign into right. where you sign right. in with Facebook and you right. are then giving them all of that information? And do you ever read all the things that they're allowing you? And and again, Facebook has gotten much better about the the requirements, right? They they limit what people other third parties can see now. But back then they didn't, and they were very, very lax about it mm -hmm. because they were incentivized to get as many people using Facebook login as right. possible because they wanted their platform to grow. Right. So it made sense back then. I don't think there was any ill intent from Facebook at all, but but I don't think they treated our data with the respect that they probably should have. Um, but they probably got away with it. It probably benefited them in the long, in the short mm -hmm. term at least. Long term, we'll, we'll have to see, but. You know, I, I think we all as consumers have to understand that there's a trade-off between convenience and privacy, always. And, you know, we as a society tend to be a little bit naive and tend to be a little bit uh, lackadaisical when it comes to privacy because we are lazy as a society. We are willing to do the path of least resistance as a society. And we're willing to give up things or not, not consider what we're giving up more likely when we're saying, yeah, let this person have my data because I want to be able to log in and find out what fruit I am or whatever the <laughs> quiz is of the day. Avocado. That's is, what you are. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I wanted to be an avocado. I guess that is a fruit. I never really thought about it. Yeah. 
Uh, that, that would be a fruit. Um, I always thought of it as a vegetable. I don't it has know why. A seed. It has a yeah, seed. I, I know that. I'm, I'm coming to self-realization right here. Well, don't always don't let me blow your mind about the tomato. But that I mean, that's the one that every fifth okay. five-year-old knows is a fruit, right? So, but but you know, I think when kind of getting back away from, from the fruit discussion, people don't realize how valuable their data is. And a lot of times, I don't think companies even realize how valuable the data is that they hold. You know, and a lot of times, even, even Facebook probably didn't realize the scope of data that was being mined from them, you know, from their users until after the fact. And that's natural. As the system grows, you realize you've just created a very, very valuable asset. Well, their intention wasn't nefarious, but the people who had the data was. So there's I don't yeah, know if, I mean, the nefarious, um, they were I, doing their job. Really? Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I would read. disagree a little yeah. bit, Pete. I would say it, I don't think they undervalued the data. Facebook I, didn't undervalue it. I don't think they undervalued it. Right. I, I think what they did was they were willing to allow the exploitation of the data because it benefited them mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Right? I, I think that's that's probably a good way of probably more it. accurate way of looking at it. Now, this all obviously leads into GDPR. And, and I want to put a couple of things out there. First, we are in no way legal experts when it comes to GDPR. So... This is this the rest of the content in the show is certainly like all the content in every show we do <laughs> is our opinion, uh, you know, not necessarily fact. So certainly seek proper legal counsel when it comes to your specific requirements related to GDPR. Um, that's a disclaimer, so no one sues us. But then additionally, I really want you to think as we're going through this about the data you're collecting and be mindful of the data you're collecting and understand something. This is not your data. Okay, when we collect an email database and we say, I have an email database of this, or I my data is XYZ, at the end of the day, it it is not your data. It is the data belonging to the individual from whom you collected it. If if you have that mindset going into GDPR, this whole process is gonna be a lot easier for you. It's not about what you can get out of the data, it's not about how big your database is. It's about, do you have the explicit consent from an individual to use the data in a way in which you've agreed upon with that individual to use that data? A good kind of example of, I think, what you're saying is you've given me your cell phone number. Mm -hmm. Even though I have your cell phone number, it's not my cell phone number, and you would be very perturbed at me if I went out and you know, used it to sign up for, you know, cat meme a day text messages yeah. and all this other random stuff that I'm probably going to do now that I think about it. <laughs> yeah. But the point it is, though, is it's yeah. not mine. My job is to be a good steward of the data I have. Right. We not- have trust, right? We, we've right. engaged in a contract of trust, whether implied or explicitly defined. We By me giving you my cell phone number to call me doesn't give you the right to abuse my cell phone number yeah. doesn't give you the right to give my cell phone number to everyone you meet. Mm-hmm. Post it on Twitter for, yeah. for the rest. Well, no, it's as, perfect example right. is because as individuals, we all understand that. That is, I understand that you've given me your cell phone number. You never have to tell me. Oh, by the way, this is for your use alone, and you know may not be transmitted to others without express consent. But as soon as it moves from a personal relationship to a business, business seems to have forgotten wait a minute, it is the same agreement that these people are making with me 
as the people who give me myself their cell phone number have also. And paid. this goes way deeper than cell phone numbers. So. Oh, it absolutely well, does, and that's uh, what makes it, it more important. Yeah, it does indeed. So we'll, we'll get into some of that, but let, let's start at the very beginning, because I, I'm sure a lot of you have been reading a lot about GDPR right now. And there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of misinformation out there. You'll probably get a little more misinformation and information in the next 30 minutes or so. <laughs> the bottom line is it's something you have to pay attention to. If you if you are playing ostrich and sticking your head in the sand at this point, you're in big, 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 big trouble. Regardless of where you are, regardless of whether you're in the EU or the US, now, for the purpose of this conversation, I will predicate it on this. Most of our clients are independent hotels in the U.S., mm-hmm. right? Or at least in North America. So for the context of the, the rest of this discussion, we're, we're mostly going to be talking about that. If you're in the EU, it's a whole different ballgame. And you, you have to pay a lot more attention than some of the things we're going to say. But we're going we're gonna to be talking about this from the context of a U.S.-based independent property for the most part. Mm-hmm. So with that said, and this is where it's going to be kind of dry. We'll try to try to make it entertaining along the way because that's what we like to do. But um, if you want to be entertained for the next 30 minutes, pause this episode, go listen to last week's episode. <laughs> and then come back. And then come back. Um, so Pete, I have a question for you. Yes, Stuart. What's GDPR? All right. So a lot of times it's not ever spelled out in articles you read about it, which is, drives me nuts. But GDPR is a General Data Protection Regulation. And it's a new, it say it's a new law, but it's really a new series of laws that are going into effect in the EU starting May 25th of this year, 2018. Which is right around the corner. Which is right around the corner. And, and to be fair, this has been on the horizon for a while. Yeah, they, they, they wrote the law about two years ago. Yeah. So this is not brand new information. We've had time to prepare, but we as, as a society and especially the hospitality industry tends to wait to the last minute. So there's going to be a lot of people panicked on well, May 24th or 28th. Yeah, and like you said, this is more for a, the U.S. audience. Anytime you see something, oh, look, a new law in the EU about something, you kind of glaze over because if you're not directly in – you know, business relationship with the EU, you may not think it's relevant. But here's but, the thing. But this applies to anyone who could be selling to someone who is buying within the EU. So this is your online sales. If someone's booking your hotel room from the EU, you need to be compliant. Right, yeah. For, for the data you're collecting from EU citizens, when they're providing that data to you in the EU you are subject to these regulations. So even though you're an American-based company or wherever you're based in the world, you have to pay attention to this. Because if, you know, I'm an EU citizen, although I'm in the U.S. right now, if I go back home to England and I'm at my parents' house and I book your hotel room, my data that I'm providing to you is covered under GDPR. So you, therefore, have to adhere to the regulations. Otherwise... What's going to happen, Stuart? You're in pretty big trouble, potentially, right? So there are some penalties for not complying with GDPR. And we'll get into what the compliance is. But the penalties are pretty stiff. It can be up to 4% of worldwide gross revenue. That's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. Or, Or 20 million euros, the greater of those two. So, So you're out potentially millions and millions of dollars... 
if you don't comply for this. Now, Gross. now in, in reality, you're probably not going to get fined that much, right? And if you're an independent property or even a flag property, the risk of someone going after you straight away is pretty minuscule. And if you look, GDPR is actually replacing existing legislation within the EU, of which there were penalties that no one paid attention to. And to be fair, they haven't really gone after the small guys with any fines. They've kind of a, a, approached people and explained where they're out of compliance and said, you need to get in compliance. But there hasn't been any major cases where they've said, here's a 20 million euro fine for, for many companies, if any, right? So the risk right now is is not that huge, but it doesn't mean you need to downplay it because mm. potentially, theoretically, and your legal team especially, and your insurance company especially, are really gonna nail you to the wall on this. If you're not compliant, there is a risk, and so you should. But more than that, more than just doing it because otherwise you'll get in trouble, going back to the beginning of the, what we were talking about, you need to do the right thing by your guests, mm-hmm. right? You need to do the right thing by being a good steward, like you said, Pete, of the data that you're collecting. All right, so on the show notes, and I'm going to give that link now, and I'll give it again at the end of the show, but fueltravel.com slash podcast, and you click on episode 82. We have this all this information that we're going to be spouting, well-documented. You can go through it line by line at your um, convenience, Great, right? So go do that and read along at, at your leisure. But Melissa. Yes, Stuart. I think one of the biggest questions people have is, like, what in the world do I need to do? What What are some of the things that are required of me by these? And, and it's what? It's a lot of information, right? It's, it's, it's 11 chapters. It's like 91 different regulation or articles, articles right? Whatever. Legal mumbo jumbo. So, but, but breaking that down, no one's going to really, or very few people are really going to read through every one of those little words, right? There's thousands and thousands. It'd take you forever to read through it. Let, leave that to the legal team. What are the real ramifications? If, if I'm an independent hotel sitting here right now saying, all right, I bought into the fact that I need to focus on GDPR. What are some of the things that I need to pay attention to? All right. Step one would be requiring your guests to explicitly consent to their data being collected and processed. All right, so no more, and, and some of this is overlap, right, with, with some of the can spam compliance mm-hmm, and, right. the, and the Canadian spam, anti-spam laws, where people aren't, no, you can no longer just assume that people are consenting. Right, and so the next two things basically are subdivisions of that statement. So you have to clearly inform your guests of what is being collected, what it's being used for, who is it being used by, and how long it's going to be stored. It's a lot of information to convey to a person. You also need to clearly inform your guests of their rights related to that data and provide them with any method to request copies of their data and have their data removed at any time. And this is where Facebook did not do this part, which is where kind of going back to our newsies, this is kind of where they all got tripped Mm -hmm. up. Yeah, I think think that's one of the biggest changes, right? Because theoretically, if you're doing a good job marketing, you're already doing that the first part right which is right. letting them know or, or giving them explicit consent before you take their information yeah we didn't know cambridge analytica was using this data to <laughs> yeah. influence our election right. at the time if so we probably all would have said no <laughs> but go on yeah so th- this part about like it, it's basically full transparency right, right. It, it's saying 
here's what I'm doing, why I'm doing it in, in a way that they understand, not legalese. And then, you know, the new piece of this, which, which we haven't been required to do before, is I can delete my information at any time. I have a method to do that, and I know how to do that. Or I can request a copy of what, you're, what you, you've kept on me at any time. So there are processes you're going to have to have in place to be able to accommodate that. Again, this is only for EU citizens who have provided data in the European Union. So it's not every piece of data in your database according to the regulation, but these are really good practices to start can't you, can't you extrapolate for all your data. You know, a lot right? of it, they're really good, but I'm going to kind of go off the rails and say a lot of them are completely idiotic, and it's <laughs> definitely clear that EU bureaucrats wrote this. Because there's a lot of things in here, yes, you should be doing, but they also have made something that's going to be a, a lawyer's, you know, field of dreams. You know, because just about everybody is not going to be able to comply with all of this. And that's why I kind of think from, you know, one, having your attorneys look at it, two, having insurance companies making sure that, that you have coverage, and then really just making the steps to do kind of everything we're going to talk about today. Just do it the best that you possibly can and have this mentality. But man... Like I said, going off the rails a little bit. Some of this stuff is just, whew. Yeah. All right. <laughs> right so on that note, we're going to keep okay. going with this list of things you need to do. So the first few items, we're talking about how you should really treat your guests. So now we're moving on to more technical stuff. So one thing is safely handling the transfer of data across borders and between companies. So, so there's that. Yeah. So basically what it's saying is, you need to disclose that if, if you're collecting data in the EU, right? But in a lot of cases, you're going to be the, the data is going to be stored or handled or processed outside of the EU. So you need to be explicit about that. You need to let people know that some other company, you know, maybe it's your booking engine, PMS, whatever, is located where in the world and what they're going to be doing with the data. Which is kind of crazy that you, you have to do that. But it, it, it kind of makes sense. It's their data. They should be entitled to know that. goes back to what you said to start the episode. I'm the individual. I need to know where my data is being stored. Exactly. That, that's, the, that's the predicate on all of this stuff. But it, it's also the security related to how you're transferring that data. So it, is it you know a secure connection? It, is the data being encrypted potentially in the right way between the, the data processes? And then... What happens if there is a data breach? That's the next step. So providing notifications of a data breach via specific channels and within specific time frames. And this is a big one. I think this is probably the one that benefits the consumer more than anything else. Because if, if you look at all the data breaches we've had over the the history of the last 20 years, right? With, with the last couple of years. Data. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Exactly. You've got like Equifax. You've got... Even Orbitz came out this right. week. And PlayStation. Said, right. Yeah, there's so many times when our data has been breached and we weren't aware of it. So now there are specific um, rules and timelines related to who you notify, how you notify them, and you have to do it within 72 hours of a breach. And then you also have to notify individuals that they were that the data was breached and what you've done to remedy any impact that that might have as well. So... That's a new process. That's something that most companies don't even think about. But now you have to have that documented, what your process is, how you're going to handle it in a timely manner. The next one, I think, is something that probably needs some 
further explanation by somebody smarter than me and how this gets done, but it's anonymizing data to protect the guest's privacy. So how do you store your data that makes your guests anonymous? How does that happen? Yeah, it, it's tough, right? Because so you can encrypt it, you can obfuscate it, you can. There, there are ways, right? The the good news for you as a hotelier is that hopefully, hopefully your um, your vendors, the technology partners that you're using, are, are taking care of that part. The other thing to say, and we'll talk about this a little more later as well. This piece of the regulation is the most gray area. And I think it's deliberately gray so that they can go after more people legally later on. But if you read the actual regulations, they don't specifically say what you have to do. Um, so you have to make a determination as a entity what your risk factor is. How many, how many EU names and or data points are you collecting? And do you need to go to the extent, right? I think for most people, if you're a US-based company and you're not in like New York, you don't have a lot of EU members that are actually providing you with data, you may at this point want to say, instead of going through that hassle of encrypting or obfuscating the data, maybe I just don't store that data. Maybe I just say, this flag this person, this is an EU person, I'm just not going to store any personally identifiable information for that person. This, this is the one area, and I'm not an expert, but this is the one area I'm really still a little confused well, on. Well, aren't there legal requirements or something about what you have to? Or Well, so that's the, that's the challenge, right? So some of this is, right, don't store any data that you don't need to, right? Don't store more data than is, is required uh, to, to effectively run your business. But sometimes state or federal law may require you to store certain information, right? So, for example, in South Carolina, you have to have the names of, and home addresses of every guest that's staying in your property. That That's required by U.S. law. That, that trumps, that's a bad word because of <laughs> Donald Trump, but that trumps the EU rules related to GDPR. So, so even if you want to delete that information... Maybe it's required by your your jurisdiction law. So, and, and a lot of this goes toward making sure we kind of hit on this point earlier. Making sure that your providers, your PMS providers, your email service providers, all have this covered. You know, using a good reputable service will make sure that they're doing these things for you. What it also says is, if you're the person who just has an Excel spreadsheet and you're dumping your stuff into there, that's a problem. Yeah. 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 You it. This whole thing is a good thought exercise, yeah. right? It's a good opportunity for us all to step back and say, why am I doing what I'm doing? And is what I'm doing really okay? Mm -hmm. Like, does it does it pass the gut check? And, and you know, one of the, we I was on earlier today, I was on the um, This Week in Hospitality Digital Marketing um, video podcast thing that's live streamed on Facebook and YouTube and all the places. And... One of one of the things someone I forget who said it. It may have may have been Lauren or Robert. Uh, no, it was Robert Cole or Ed St. Ange. But one of them said, you know, the gut check you should always do is if this was happening to one of your loved ones, your your spouse, your kids, would you be okay with it? Like, is is the fact that you're using the data in this way, does it pass that line of a little bit icky? You know, is is it really? I probably shouldn't be doing that. And if you look at it in the lens of this is my data or this is a loved one's data, 
and you question it that way, I think I think you might have a little diff- different outcome into how you handle the data. And speaking of which, let's go on to the next step, which is not using the data to preferentially serve segments of your database, meaning you can't give special rates for people who are actually based in the EU, et cetera. I or think any geographic area. I think this part is, I don't know why they stuck this in there. It seems like they've done all this stuff about anonymizing data and doing the right thing, but then they stuck in like a marketing thing. So like if, if I decide, now granted, let's say this moved to the US and I wanna give a discount if you live within you know, two hours drive, you get a discount for this weekend. I'm not allowed to do that according to, according to the new rule regulations. Why no, would it's no. discriminatory? Because it, what favors <coughs> one person discriminates against someone else, right? So if I said, okay, everyone that lives in Germany gets a discount, but local that's not fair to everyone that lives in France. No, it's not. But I mean, local discounts are something that a lot of places have. I can go to a lot of places in Myrtle Beach that you know you'll get a local discount. All right, but that that's. I, that's different. I think that would affect people. You know, if you're a hotel in the EU, that that mm-hmm. that would be a there's a potential conflict yeah. there. But for if you're in a US based property, all it's basically saying is you can't give preferential treatment to someone because you know their lo- their location in the EU. But that's not what you're doing in this case. You know, you're you're basically saying only people that I know are within a hundred mile radius of my current location, I'm going to give preferential yeah. treatment. Local that's discount, not covered in GDPR. Local discount most of the time requires a ID at Auto the ID, yeah. station, right? Yeah. So wherever you're getting it, yeah, a golf I think you can scout around a local, local yeah. discount kind of thing. Now well, I will say that this is probably targeted at the airlines because they have been notorious for offering different rates based on where you are booking from. You know, I can't remember the name of the website, but you were able to basically, you know, proxy to yeah, if you, uh, uh, South America. That's the where point. Where you could buy a flight from, say, Atlanta right. to New York for cheaper. Pete, if it was cheaper for me to send a proxy out of the, any EU country right. to get a discount for it, and I know how to do that, that's kind of unfair, right? Right. Well, if, if you're a marketer that's doing that kind of thing currently, shame on you. You should not be doing that. That that's just That's just wrong on so many ethical levels. So I, I'm okay with this part mm-hmm. of GDPR. I think it's okay because cause you should, you know, it, it's stopping bad, like nefarious marketing tactics. And I think I'm okay with that. That's fine. All right, moving on. So some companies are also going to be required to appoint a data protection officer to oversee all of this compliance stuff. And it really, it really comes down to what kind of data you're collecting as to whether you are required to do that. I honestly, I think everyone should designate someone in charge, right? I think having someone that takes ownership over data should be done regardless. But in this case, they're talking about what types of data, like the regulation itself says, if you're collecting um, biometric data, if you're collecting sexual orientation, if you're collecting political or religious views there's certain things that are a little more personal than name email address phone number that require a little bit more scrutiny which i think is fair now i will say this a lot of hoteliers automatically say i don't qualify for this because i don't collect biometric data i don't have door locks that require a thumbprint or retinal scan right but you know if someone needs a handicap room 
Exactly. So there are mm-hmm. things, right? right. If you, disability is one of these things that comes under this this jurisdiction. So if someone's requiring a, a handicap room and then puts in their comments something about their physical disability, and you now know that, or maybe it's sexual orientation, I don't know why well, someone would but, comment but, that, but they might. But think about you how, should uh, not be storing that data. A church group comes to your place and you record that they're with this church group. Right. Well, then you know their religious beliefs or a political party, right? Or or a trade union organization, right? These are these are things that don't you're getting that. a little bit more personalized. You may just by default because you have a group code, right? So so say sure. say the Evangelical Church of Zion is coming to stay at your property, right? It's a group. And you have a group code for that, and you're storing that group code in association with Phil Fariska because he's a member of the Evangelical Church of Zion. You now have identified him based on his religious leanings. That opens you up to a whole new level of scrutiny. Don't store that data. Full disclosure, I'm not. Don't store my data. <laughs> Everyone that listened to this now has data on you, Phil, that you're an evangelical Church of Zionist. If you know me. <laughs> All right. What's next? All right. So I think we, we kind of given some, shone some light a little bit on some of the things you need to be considering. There, there's still some gray areas, right? So one of the things that I see thrown around a lot is data processes versus data controllers. These are terms that are used, and your regulations that apply to you are going to depend on which of these you are. So a lot of hotels have come to me, like our clients come to me and say, what am I? Am I a, am I a processor? Am I a collector? What is it? So, Pete, you want to shine some light on that, what the difference is? Yeah, so if we look at it this way, so the first thing we look at is a data controller. In a controller, if you think about it this way, if you were the one who decided to collect the data, then you are a data controller. You're the one who said, I want this person's first name, last name, email address, zip code. If they're checking in my hotel, I need their driver's license or the driver's uh, license plate number. That makes you the data controller. So think, think of it from that perspective. If you're a data processor, you're the one who was charged with doing something with the data the controller told you to do. Think about a PMS. So you took the information, you said you wanted it, and then you stuck it into your PMS. The PMS has to do some stuff with it, but that means they're just processing the data. They weren't the ones who said, okay, we have to collect this. Yeah, and it it gets a little confusing, right? Because theoretically, especially if you're like a flag property, you may be one of multiple collectors Mm -hmm. or or controllers, right? So you may be um, deciding certain data that's being collected, but the flag itself might be deciding some of that because you don't control the booking process. So you might be what's considered a, a joint controller. Uh, and you might also be a processor because you might have your own internal systems, your own internal databases that mm-hmm. are processing the data. That's important to note. You're you're not necessarily either or. You can be a you controller can be and both. a processor. Certain yeah. roles that you perform can yeah. be both. But, but as a rule, general rule, you are probably, as a hotelier, you are probably the controller. And every vendor, every technology vendor you're using, your ECRM, PMS, booking engine, all those guys, web web host, if they're collecting email addresses, all those people are probably in some form or fashion a processor. Mm-hmm. And you need to be aware of that because that's you you are responsible for what the processor does with the data that you control. So. Right. And then the, the other way to kind of look at that is 
as the data controller, let's just, let's go ahead and assume that every hotel is a data controller. Look at all of the processors that you use and go back to make sure one of them is not that Excel file on my front desk computer. That's what you want to avoid. You want to send that over to a data processor like a PMS, like your email systems, that's going to be secure and that's going to really adhere to all the GDPR requirements. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an important distinction. I almost think of it like a PCI compliance. I was thinking thing. the same thing. You know, like if, if you may not be PCI compliant, but if your PMS is and where your credit cards are processed are PCI compliant, that counts. You yeah. know, try to more or less, you know, pass the hot potato to the next person who's going to have, you know, those requirements yeah. in place. And, and, and to be clear, you, you have to be PCI compliant in terms of how you access the data, right. who has control, uh, password security, things like that. But y your exposure and your requirements are different as, as someone that's, you know, collecting the credit card versus the person that's processing the credit card. And it's, it's the same with the, the data here. So, you know, we, we've kind of talked about the, the specifics of it, but I want to, I want in terms of the regulation, but I want to talk about it a little bit in terms of what, what should you be mindful of? What questions should you be asking yourself and your team and making sure that you definitively know the answer to these questions? Phil, you want to have a stab at that? Yeah. So I think first thing you need to ask is what personal data are you collecting and storing? And there is a difference between collecting and storing. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, do you, like for example, going back to the PCI example, right? You're collecting credit card information, but are you storing it? And probably not. You're probably offloading that to some kind of credit card processor, and then they're tokenizing it and providing you back with some, again, encrypted, obfuscated token that you store in the database so you don't have the actual original information because you don't need it. There's no reason for you to have the credit card information. So have the same thought process related to what other data you're collecting. And then you want to ask yourself, did we obtain the data appropriately and did we have the necessary consent? Yeah, and th this is critical. And you should already be in this practice when it comes to things like email addresses, right? We've gone away from this implied consent world that we used to live in and we should be getting explicit consent and we should be disclosing to people everything we already talked about. So why are you collecting the data, all that, all that stuff. Dan. Right. Yeah. And that's, that was my next point. Did you tell them why you're collecting the data and what you're doing with it? That's another question you need to ask yourself and then move to, so where did you inform that person you collected data from of their right to withdraw the consent? Yeah, and like we talked about earlier, that that's new, right? That, that the consumer didn't necessarily previously have the ability to tell you, hey, I don't want you to store my data. And now that's a requirement. You have to give them a means by which they can say, do not store my data. Again, unless legally it's required by your state or federal law. And also for how long? Like, hey, you know, obviously you collected the data. Are you storing it for longer than you need to by state or federal law? Exactly, yeah. And another one would be, are we keeping the data secure by using a level of security appropriate to the risk? Again, we're talking about credit card information and things along those lines. Yeah, but in, in this case, you know, it, 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 name, address, email address, those are things that are personally identifiable. So what should we do? And that's something where I really encourage you to consider your, your specific risk related to how many 
addresses you're collecting from the EU and what your legal requirements are from your legal team. But also you have to consider your insurance companies, right? So what we're going to likely see here in the next couple of months is the insurance companies that are, are providing you a policy related to you know, what you're going to owe people if there's some kind of issue, like a data breach, for example, they're going to start getting a little more strict, right? They're going to require you to perform certain things in order to continue to be covered or your premiums are going to go sky high. So you're going to have to have conversations with both your legal team and your insurance team. To and make sure and your on-site team. And this, the next point is, you know, who are you giving this data to? Is, is only the appropriate staff having access to this or is it just anybody right so to pete's example earlier where you've got an excel file sitting on your desktop or shared in google docs who has access to that Mm -hmm. data and why do they have access to it and do they need access to it if they don't let's let's err on the side of caution here and say it's a need to know data kind of situation like don't don't put that stuff publicly for all your staff members they don't need it don't give it to them. It's that, just a risk that you don't need to take. To further that, you know, third parties that you use, are you putting the proper protections in place to make sure that, you know, the third party has the access to the proper data? Right. You you need to be reaching out to your third party vendors now. You know, you got a couple of months before it's it's absolutely required, but start it now because probably a lot of your vendors aren't quite ready for this, and they're probably scrambling themselves to say. All right, what do we need to change contractually? Or do I need some kind of sign-off from you to say that you are handling my data appropriately? And and the last point you already covered that I had was, does your legal team and insurance company, you know, what do they require from me to make sure that you're completely compliant? All right, so th- this is a lot of information. And, and again, clearly we're not experts on this subject, but we're, we're just trying to point you in the right direction or at least get you thinking about the right things. But... We did put together a checklist, and again, this is available in the notes, fueltravel.com slash podcast, click on episode 82, but let's go through the checklist of of some things that you absolutely need to be doing between now and and the May 25th date. All right, so one, 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 one. Designate someone to be your data protection officer. I think this one's pretty important because we do need to assign some responsibility because it's one of those things where it's not going to be a full-time job necessarily unless you are a, you know, a massive corporation, but just assign somebody to focus on making sure that you are going to be implementing you know, these regulations and following all the proper procedures. Yeah, and this may not legally be required by everyone, like we talked earlier, depending on what data you're collecting is in, in your size and things like that. It's not necessarily required, but it's just, it's just a solid idea, mm-hmm. right? Because... You not everyone in your company is going to have a full grasp of this. You need a maven internally, or potentially go out outside of your company. If you don't have someone that has the time to invest in it, go hire an expert and and be. I would say be diligent about that. There's a lot of opportunists out there that are trying to like. If you search for GDPR compliance kind of keywords, there are a ton of people advertising on those keywords and trying to take money because they know there's a lot of people that are fearful and when there's fear there's an opportunity so be careful find find someone that's very reputable but you need someone that's going to take care of this for you you need someone that's a champion for the gdpr if you don't have that person you're probably going to miss something 
and then you're going to be exposed. So does, and I don't know this, but does the data protection officer, do they get a badge and a gun? Because that would be pretty cool. <laughs> no, Pete, you can't be the data protector. Uh, are you buying for that within our organization? Yeah, as long as I get a cool little badge I can wear on my belt, that would be pretty I'll cool. give you a badge, but not a plastic badge. You already got your own gun. Right. He is our Dwight Schrute. So. <laughs> All right, so what's number two? two, two, two? Number two uh, is, I think, really important, regardless of this, is that you should sit down and map out all of your inbound and outbound data points. Like really sit down and document what you're collecting and how it's being shared. And you really should be doing this anyway. Exactly. If GDPR never even existed, that's a great thing to do. It really is. Yeah. That's the good thing about GDPR is I think it's forcing us as marketers to use common sense and, and not abuse the rights to the data that we've you know, had mm -hmm. for a long time. But we've so, talked about it a lot where you know, can spam years and years ago was because marketers were screwing up email. Right. Castle uh, with Canadian anti-spam laws, same thing that marketers were messing it up. And then GDPR, same thing, marketers mess it up. You know, your governmental yeah. regulation agencies have to jump exactly. in. These, these regulations wouldn't need to exist if there weren't people misusing the data that they collected in the first place. So I think having an understanding, like you said, Melissa, of what you're collecting, why you're collecting it, how you're collecting it is really important. And documenting that. I think is critical. I bet you're going to be surprised at how much data you didn't realize you had. Yeah. Yeah. And, and question it, right? When you're, when you map this out, it's a good thought exercise to say, do I really need to be storing this data? That leads us right to our next point. Clean up what you have. If you have data you don't need, properly remove it. If you have data that you want to keep, ask for consent because if you don't ask for consent by may 25th you're going to lose all that data or at least you should be mm -hmm. yeah you, you should be so that i mean i think that's important look at your database and and if you can discern where you collected the data for if you know 100 percent this person was not in the eu right if if they are an american with an american physical address i think you can safely assume you, you might miss a couple but for the most part, you can say this was collected in the U.S. or Asia or wherever it was outside of Europe. You're okay, but find the data in your database that you're not sure about. Either either has a European Union address or doesn't have an address. You're not sure. Segment those. Denote those. Somehow mark those in your database and reach out to those people now. You have a couple of months before you are not going to be able to touch those people again. You're not going to be able to send them a single email. You're not going to be able to use that data in any form or fashion unless you somehow document that you have consent of that person. And honestly, this is one of the rare areas of GDPR that will save you money because if you have people in your database or your files that have not contacted you, you try to contact them and they've never responded, it's probably time to realize that I've kept this data too long anyway and get them out of your database. You know, we see that Fair all the point. time where you have that vanity metric of how big is your database and you say, oh, yeah, I, have how five, many active I have 500,000 right. know, people in my database only send to 50,000 that open the message. Maybe there's 450,000 there that you actually don't have and you know, maybe good candidates to get cleaned out. Good point. All right, so, four, 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 four. Update your internal policy manuals. Everyone's favorite thing to do. <laughs> so, but it's, it's important. You know, document what every staff member 
is going to be exposed to in terms of data, what they should do with it, and how they should start reacting to GDPR. Yeah, I, th I think you've got to spend time training staff on this, the, at least making them aware. And when you think about it, it's, it's specifically it's the staff that may interact with personal data. So, so it's certainly anyone in your marketing team, probably the GM, but it's also your front desk, right? Anyone that's collecting data at check-in, potentially mm -hmm. you should be thinking about this, even though it's not, you know, if you're in Europe, certainly, but even if you're in the US, you sh it's not technically covered under GDPR. If someone's checking in at your desk and you're collecting data right there because you're in the US, but it's just best practice. And, and these regulations that are being enforced now, maybe they won't be as strict in the US eventually, but there's something coming along. Mm -hmm. It's just a good practice to be in and, and training people to care about the guest and their data that they're providing to you. And going back to the very beginning of the show, again, you know, it's not your data, it's their data. So training your staff to think that way is important. All right, moving on to number five. Is update your privacy policies. And by this, we are talking about what's on your website. And there's so many templates out there that you can go look at to get just a baseline privacy policy. But you need to specify you know, all the personal information that you're collecting, how you're collecting it, why you're collecting it, how you're going to use the data, how you secure the data, the third-party access, cookies, all this stuff that we've already talked about needs to be in this privacy policy. Yeah, and we got an, a, a fairly exhaustive list in the show notes, but again, like Melissa said, go search for that. Go Google templates for privacy policies, GDPR. You'll find a lot. I, I guarantee you, your current privacy policy does not cover mm -hmm. everything it needs to. You need to add some things to your privacy policy. And that privacy policy does not need to be buried in your website. You need to make that very front and center. So when you're collecting email addresses, it's unrealistic, I think, personally, to put the entire privacy policy front and center right there because that will be your entire homepage, right? But to make it very overt so they don't have to dig for it, putting it right there next to where they're signing up or providing data and saying, hey, this is our policy. You need to pay attention to this and you need to check a box to say that you acknowledge that you read it. think that's very, very critical. Yeah, And even if you do f go grab a template, this is it's not enough to find and replace your name with you know the name that you copied it from. Send this through your attorneys get their blessing to make sure that you've covered everything, and then make sure that everything that we talked about here is also in your policy manual. Because you say you're, you're telling the customer that you're gonna do all this stuff, make sure you're actually, in fact, doing it. Yeah, update your, update your data collection process, both on and offline. It's really important, I mean, have a double opt-in. I, I, mean, I think you should be able, telling people, well, I don't think, you should be telling people what you're doing with their data, what you're collecting, why you're collecting, and we, I mean, we covered all that, but make sure you have your online policies updated and your offline at your front desk. What are you collecting from people as they check in? That's also important, and it goes back to training your staff of how they have to be compliant with GDPR because they are data collectors. Yeah, definitely audit both those processes, offline and online. And it goes back to that first point or second point, which is mapping it out, but really, really scrutinizing the collection process and, and being, again, mindful of what you're collecting, why you're collecting it, how you're collecting it. So what are we on? Seven, 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 seven. And number seven is have a data breach policy. One of the things with GDPR is you have to notify everybody within 72 hours 
which means you better have a plan for what you're going to say to them and what your responses are going to be prior to it ever happening. So have that ready to go. And number eight is to create methods for guests to remove or modify their data. And this needs to be in a standardized format within 30 days of the request. So figure out how you're going to do that. And then you need to ensure that any joint... Hey, we didn't say nine. Oh, I'm sorry. Nine, uh, nine, sorry, nine, I didn't... Nine, yeah, nine, yeah nine, it's okay. And then there was eight, 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 eight. Seven, 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 seven. Number nine. nine. Ensure that any joint controllers and authorized data processors are in compliance. So you're the collector, but you need to make sure that you, yourself, the collector, as well as your processors I, I are also I said collector earlier to throw you off. It's controller is the technical term. Control, excuse me. Yeah. Ensure that your controller and your processors are both in compliance. So you as the controller and all of your processors are in compliance with this. Yeah, so it, there's a thing called a DPA, which is what? A data processing agreement, I Correct. think is what it stands for, that you have to have signed between. So, so there's a couple of options. You can either go back and, and redo whatever legal agreement the contract that you have or you can get them to sign some kind of dpa to, which essentially mitigates your risks because it says i'm con this is the data that i'm processing and this is how i'm going to treat the data and that i'm compliant with gdpr so make sure all the vendors that you have that t even touch your data have signed this dpa i think it's critical Seek legal counsel if you're concerned or you've listened to our podcast. <laughs> Either way. Seek legal yeah. counsel is probably a good idea. Yeah, so th this does get into... And to be clear, not, not to sue us for our bad information about GPR, <laughs> but to actually learn about GPR. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a complex subject. It's, it's a massive piece of legislation, and for everyone to comply to it, you do kind of have to get into the weeds from a, a legal perspective, and, and that's why it's perfect to, yeah, to have counsel. We're not the experts. Do your homework. Yep. Yeah. Number, and number 11 and the final one, and maybe perhaps the most important one. Because we're always saying, always be testing. It even applies here. Test your process thoroughly. Yes. Make sure that it works. For, for sure. You gotta, you know, we, we can talk in theory and have the policies in place, but at the end of the day, what you say on paper matters nor if you're not adhering to that. So, so you know, do get someone to put their data into your system as a regular guest and see how the data is being used and request that it gets removed and, and do all the things that a guest potentially could do just for your own peace of mind. I think making sure you test it to, to, to make sure everyone within your organization is following the letter of the law, that your vendors are following what they should be, I think is critical because at the end of the day, if it doesn't work the way you design it to work, then it's it doesn't matter how you design it. it, it you know, you're still going to get um, some kind of fine, some kind of the G, the GDPR mm -hmm. regulators in the EU GDPR are going to come up. Yeah, the GDPRP are going to come after <laughs> GDPRP. You. Yeah, they're going to come after you. So definitely test it. Man, this Ooh. is a rough episode, guys. <laughs> rough. But we got through it. Yeah, and it's important, you know. I, I, I'd, next week we need to do something a little more lighthearted. Um, Can we do another top ten? What Bring do you want your to ten? Your te top ten B stories. What do you want to do? <laughs> I don't care. I just want to do another one of those. It was fun. Uh, before we go off on a crazy tangent, which I'm sure we're about to do, I will say that the show notes a little more documented, you know, like bulleted than we went through today. There's also, and I would encourage you to go download this. HTNG put out a white paper which was basically. Are you uh, adhering to GDPR? 
that was way better than we covered today. I could have just told you at the beginning of the show and said, stop listening, go, go <laughs> download this. But there's a link to that from HTNG that I think you should look at and then all of your vendors should look at because it, it's probably the most robust one. You know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of confusing, conflicting information out there. Just do your diligence. And I think it begins with assigning someone responsible for the project and then making sure you're coordinating with any legal counsel and insurance companies and things like that. And then you'll be fine. But at the end of the day, people, treat people like people. Collect their data in a way that is fair. That gets a loved one. And, and transparent. And don't do anything with their data that you wouldn't want done with your data. And you're going to be just fine, ladies and gentlemen. And there you have it. Yeah. And speaking of loved ones, mm-hmm. we got some feedback from one of our subscribers. Oh, yeah, that's right. Can I read aloud? You may. All right. I got some feedback on LinkedIn from our friend Tim Jones. And he said the following to me. He said, keep up the good work. I tell other hotel folks about Fuel podcasts quite often, as long as they're outside of my market, LOL. (laughs) But seriously, the info you guys discuss is very helpful and timely. Thanks for the response. Thanks, Tim. Tim, we appreciate you listening. And we appreciate you spreading the word. If you can leave a review on iTunes, that would be great. But... Word of mouth is just as valuable. So, Thank you, Tim. Yeah, we appreciate it. Um, do we want to do a wishes? We haven't done one of those in a couple of weeks. Oh, we've missed some let's, wishes. Let's pick a wish. All right. How about um, Mr. Chris Altman? Chris Altman wish. It's a Chris Altman wish. He says, we'd love to have a booking tool available to independent hotels, similar to the airlines, that overlays room rates on top of a hotel floor plan, allowing a user to book the exact room they want, that, and a room full of monkeys to execute on every little thing marketing has to touch. I'd like to focus on the monkeys aspect of this. (laughs) I like monkeys. Monkeys are kind of awesome. My understanding is... N- anybody who's ever had a monkey will disagree with you. A room full of monkeys they sounds do like throw a disaster. I had a friend who they had a monkey. They also rip off your face, the face yeah, of your friend. Sometimes. Yeah. Well, I had a friend who had a monkey. That was an ape, And sorry. he hated no, it. was a chimp. He had to put a... That's an ape. Oh, sorry. That's not a monkey. Indoor right. monkeys have to wear diapers. Yeah. I mean, they're like little children. Otherwise, they're going to throw it at you, Pete. That's true. <laughs> I wonder if anyone's ever trained a monkey to poop on the toilet. I mean, they're That's intelligent animals. Question. I would think there that somebody has figured this out. Mm-hmm. You can train a cat. Certainly, you could train a monkey. Can you really train? You can train a cat. I thought that was a meet the fuckers thing. Oh, I don't know. Okay. I know in uh, Bruce Almighty, he trained the dog to use the yes. toilet. But wasn't he God? Yeah, that's yeah, he was. Okay. <laughs> so that's what you have to do. Become God. And then All, right. All right. Anyway. <laughs> you, you called that we were going to go off on a tangent. I did. Do we want to acknowledge Chris's first wish, which was actually legitimate, which is the, the, the rates overlay. over the floor I plan? I think yeah. that's awesome. That's a really cool idea. It is a cool idea. I think the limitations, you know, going to be on the PMS side. Uh, you know, we, we used to do something similar with guest desk booking engine at all, but uh, for uh, picking lots on campgrounds. Which, I mean, uh, it's cool, you know, where you could actually pick your specific location. So it wouldn't really be that tough to do it. We would just need the data to, to do it. So, Chris, hey, we've got a couple of clients we work with of yours um, that maybe we can talk to the PMS and just, see if uh, we can make your wish come true. Careful with your floor plan images because TripAdvisor doesn't like them. This is true. Yeah. Thanks, TripAdvisor. What is that? I don't. 
No, we had we had issues with them saying you have invalid images and because they were oh you uploading images. the uh, photos and it was a floor yeah. plan and they didn't like they it. They didn't like it. Have I ever told you I hate TripAdvisor these days? Let me, let me go on another hour tangent. No, I'm just kidding. Are we going to do... Pete, did you finish your blog post yet? Not yet. About your disdain for TripAdvisor? My hatred Not for yet. TripAdvisor. I think to maybe man. that's what needs to be next week. Can we do that would be fun. 10 yeah. reasons I hate TripAdvisor. Let's do it. All right. All right. It'd be like 10, 10 things I hate about you. But, but for TripAdvisor. <laughs> we can get Heath Ledger back from the dead and he can oh appear God. on the podcast. That'd be great. Yeah. I'm trying to bring some levity to this yeah. episode because it was hey, so dry. Hey, and here's a question yeah, you for bring you. bring back the Joker, I'm in. Hey, wait right. a minute. How much does a pirate pay for corn? How much? I don't know. A buccaneer. Uh... <laughs> Are you taking over the dad joke mantle? Just today. Okay. I love it. That's Just a today. good one. That was good. Mm. There's right, some levity. Everybody. Now All we right. can end on a high note or a low note. I'm not sure. All right. Well, if you want the notes to this week's podcast, uh, you know, go. go <laughs> I don't know why you The high and low notes. Yeah. Go to fueltravel.com slash podcast. Click on episode 82. Uh, which Pete. is 10, which is really one. <coughs> oh, oh, call back. back. off with your numerology. <laughs> yeah, you're Sorry. obsessed If you're not confused yet, <laughs> ask me a question on Twitter. You can find me at pdimeo, P-D-I-M-A-I-O. And Melissa, where can they find you on Twitter? I am at M A Cavanaugh, M A K A V A N A G H. And Phil. You can find me at P Fariska, P F O R I S K A. You can find me at Stuart Butler on Twitter. You can find us collectively at Fuel Travel. We'd love to hear from you, answer questions that you may have. You can also, if you're not in the Twitterverse, you can email us info at fueltravel.com. Again, you can get the notes at fueltravel.com slash podcast. Click on episode 82 if you so choose. And until next time, you have been listening to the very dry GDPR version of the Fuel Hotel Marketing Podcast. I've been in a very sing-songy mood lately. I don't know why. I like to sing song all the time. Sing-songing. Sing-sing. Sing-songing. We just got our ending. <laughs>